got your Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I think it's an encouraging word tonight. It's, it's always an encouraging word. God's word has a way of, of building up even, even when it's convicting, even when we're challenged. But uh, this is good stuff. If you open up Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to pick it right up in verse 1. Kind of go over a little bit of where we were on Sunday and we'll continue on tonight. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. By the way, that's Hinani, the same thing Abraham said, same thing Jacob said when God called their names. So now Moses says, Hinani, remember that. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power or the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Father, bless now the teaching of your word, we ask. We come humbly as servants, but boldly by the blood of Jesus, seeking your wisdom, seeking your discernment, asking for your encouragement, for the building up, Lord, of your people and that you would give us ears to hear what you want us to hear, what you desire to speak and teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Moses stood barefoot before a bush burning, but not consumed. It's a fascinating picture to consider, especially since it's been done in so many movies and referred to so often over time, a bush burning yet not consumed. And from the midst of the bush, this cloak of fire surrounded, according to the literal text, angel Yahweh, Malach Yahweh. Angel Yahweh, the visible appearance of the invisible God, this will become even more clear to you as to the nature of angel Yahweh tonight. I picked up an interesting commentary, the JPS Torah commentary, written by Nahum Sarna, a scholarly Jew. 
and his treatment of Exodus, and it's fascinating to get the Jewish perspective and the Jewish take. This is what he had to say about the Malach Yahweh, angel Yahweh. He said, again, from a Jewish perspective, not a Jew who believes in Jesus, unfortunately, but he said, the angel has no role in the entire theophany. It is a fire that attracts Moses' attention, and it is always God himself who speaks. Most likely, the angel is mentioned only to avoid what would be a gross anthropomorphism of localizing God in a bush. Really. Ironically, Sarna himself points out the Hebrew word for bush, sine, only appears here and in Deuteronomy 33, 16. It's only in two places in all of the Hebrew scriptures, this word, this particular word for bush. There are different words for bushes or shrubs that are mentioned, but this one only twice, right here in Exodus chapter three, and then in Deuteronomy 33, 16, where Moses refers to Yahweh God as Shokanai Sine, which means, Deuteronomy 33, 16, him who dwelt in a bush. So he's talking about Yahweh and he calls him poetically him who dwelt in a bush. So whether Nahum Sarna likes it or not, is it unthinkable that holy God, awesome God, creator God, majesty God would inhabit a bush? Well, God himself said, in Isaiah 57, 15, thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You better hope that God can dwell in a bush. You better believe that God can be in the lowly places as well as the lofty places. For right here, Moses comes to this bush not consumed where this fire surrounds what, again, Nehum Sarna calls a theophany, but he says, now the angel's just a distraction because God himself wouldn't actually be in the bush. Well, apparently he was because Moses said he was. Angel Yahweh spoke to him. And Moses immediately responded that, that phrase I mentioned a few moments ago, Hanani, or Hanani. Hanani, which is, quote, the standard, spontaneous, unhesitating response to a call of God. When the patriarch said that, Abraham, Jacob, and now Moses, it's a statement of, I'm here, almost an I'm ready, or speak to me, or what would you have me do? unhesitating, the same unreserved response of the others. And I wonder, how would you respond? I mean, let's say you were in the position of pasturing a flock of Jethro and Midian, and you saw this awesome sight, and you traversed up to this bush that was on fire and yet not on fire, not consumed, the flames growing up, and you're spoken to, and you see there, the angel Yahweh, and he begins to speak to you. How do you respond? What do you say? How do you reply to him when he calls out to you from a burning, not consumed bush? What's remarkable is Moses' immediate response without hesitation 
is quickly exchanged for an uncertain, tentative hesitancy. And not because he doubted God, but because Moses doubted Moses. He is, as we compared him on Sunday to that C.S. Lewis autobiographical statement, a most reluctant convert. Listen to what he says, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And thus begins two chapters worth of a flimsy human contrast to the presence of Yahweh. We're gonna see a great distinction, a juxtaposition, if you will, between Moses giving excuse after excuse why he shouldn't do anything and why he should never even be called on and who Yahweh is. Keep that in mind. It's gonna take all of the next four chapters for Moses to finally fully accept his calling. But in the meantime, he begins with five flimsy excuses. And you might wanna jot these down, five excuses. And here, verse 11, is excuse number one. Moses feels inadequacy. He feels his inadequacy. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever felt inadequate when called on by the Lord to do something or when some task was laid before you. Moses immediately says, who am I? Who am I? And you wonder if he's looking around to see if maybe Angel Yahweh was talking to someone else and there was just the sheep. Who am I? You know, I think 40 years earlier, Moses thought he knew. I think back in the halls of Egypt as he strutted around there, a mighty prince, a valiant warrior, and then a man with a heart for his people as he began to look at their ill treatment. Man, that strapping young Egyptian, Egyptian prince might as just as well have been ready to start a revolution for his people, the Hebrews. That's what I'm here to do. But it's been 40 years of being a complete, unknown, unimportant shepherd in Midian. Who am I? The midlife crisis is coming a little late for Moses in his 80s. But it hits most people at some point when you thought you knew who you were at one point and now all of a sudden, who am I in this? It is the language of identity crisis. Moses, I'm calling you, I want you to go. Who am I? And every crisis of identity betrays feelings of inadequacy. I'm just not up to this. Verse 12, and he said, the Lord said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And so the lesson begins, and please get this. And I'm gonna try and repeat this a lot tonight because it is so significant. Moses doesn't even hear it at first, as evidenced by his excuses that continue, but you can hear it right now. It doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. It doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. Who I am. I will be with you, he says. God's immediate answer to the question of who am I is I will. It's actually more than that. But he immediately brings Moses to himself, his presence. I got it. You're not being sent out alone. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse four, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Man, when I ran across that verse years ago, I just fell in love with it. My adequacy is from God. He makes me adequate. Adequate to the task, adequate for the relationship, adequate to the calling that he's placed on my life, adequate to survive this crazy, insane season that we're in. He's the one who makes me adequate. And Paul says he also made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the letter of the law, Paul contrasts with the new covenant of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that brings us to life. And so when we feel inadequate to the task, when we lack the strength or the confidence or even the self-assurance to do what he's asking us to do, we need to understand it is his spirit who makes us adequate. It is Jesus who gives life and inspiration and confident conviction. But the real problem lies in something bigger than our inadequacy. And the problem is, when we feel this way, we realize we don't yet truly know our God. Second flimsy excuse of Moses, he feigns ignorance. Moses feigns ignorance. Verse 13, Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses says, well, who are you? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses, after saying, who am I? Now in essence says, who are you? And this opens up a huge divine moment of revelation. God does something really cool here. He takes the Hebrew verb to be, which is hayah, hayah, and he transforms it into his own name, Yahweh. Hayah, to be, Yahweh, I am. But get this, understand, in, in other languages, in Greek and in, in English and perhaps others as well, there are different verbs that distinguish or differentiate between existence and presence. Like for example, in English we would say, I exist. But we could also say, I'm here. Those are two different things. One, I exist, I am an existent being. The other one, I'm present, I'm, I'm here among you, I'm, I'm with you. I exist, I'm here. But in Hebrew, the same verb bears both meanings. That is, to exist is to be present. To be present is to exist. It's one and the same. And Mottier says, the presence of God is not therefore a bare is, but a living force, vital and personal. In no situation is he an ornamental extra. In every situation, he, get this, he is the key active ingredient. Oh, if I, if I lived that way, 
if I saw things that way, that in every situation, God is primary. God is the primary substance of all going on in my communications with brothers and sisters, in my behaviors, in my life circumstances. He is the key ingredient. I mean, think about that. Is, is Yahweh elemental to your life moment by moment? Do you recognize his immediate, existent, active presence? Or do you, like so many, find yourself going through long stretches of time where you don't even think about God? How can someone so vital, so fundamental to all created life be ignored? And I would say it's because he is misunderstood. In verse 11, again, Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I? And in verse 12, he said, certainly I will be with you. But here's the caveat. Here's what I didn't say before. In the Hebrew text, it's not I will be with you. It's certainly I am with you. In other words, not only will I be with you when you go to Egypt, I'm with you right now. And I'll be with you when you lay your head to rest tonight. And I'll be with you when you awaken in the morning. I am with you always. So the phrase is not, certainly I will be with you. It is certainly I am with you. He can't be any less than immediately, actively present as God. That is awesome. That is bigger than just the idea of omnipresence. God is in all places at all times. God is all that matters in all places at all times. God is the key, the focal point. And God's answer to the I can'ts is I am. Who am I, Lord? I can't do that. What would you, I don't, I am. I am. In other words, with you, right now, present, always. I am. If I feel inadequate, if I'm ignorant, or both, it doesn't matter who I am. What matters is who I am, Yahweh. And remember, Yahweh speaks to Moses from a blazing fire, and yet, you know what's interesting? <laughs> the bush does not burn. Yeah, we know that, Rick. Yeah, no, don't miss this. What does that tell you? If the fire is blazing and the bush doesn't burn, it tells us that God doesn't need any other fuel that he is self-powered. Like a normal fire needs the fuel of the, of the timber to burn up, of the wood to be part of the wood and the oxygen has to work together for the fire to have life and exist, not with God's holy fire. His fire is energy in and of itself. The presence and the work of I am doesn't need any help. And by the way, the power of God will not burn you out because he is the power. So when I'm walking in the power of the Spirit of God, it doesn't wear me out. He doesn't burn out his people. He says, come take from my power. It's limitless. It's eternal. It's everlasting and invincible. Come, come draw off of my power. Remember when the woman touched the hem of Jesus' robe? Remember what he said? Hey, wait a minute, someone touched me. Peter said, 
everybody's touching you, Lord. And he said, no, no, I felt power go out from me. She tapped into his power. Did, did Jesus immediately fall to his knees and go, whoa, hang on a second. Whew, huh, I just lost some power, man. No, but he felt the power released. Such is the power of God. I am, Yahweh, is all the adequacy and awareness that we need, which, by the way, is why Jesus had almost the exact same conversation with his disciples that Yahweh has here with Moses. What do you mean? Matthew 16, 15, Jesus said to his boys, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, Petros, upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter was not the rock. As we've talked about before, Peter was the pebble, the Petros. The Petra is faith in Christ. That's the rock on which God builds his church. Faith in who he is, which silences all the I can'ts. Faith in I am. Trust in Jesus, which illuminates the ignorant with wisdom. Now, I've told you all before, I am not that wise a man. I am ignorant of many things. And it's funny because people will come up to me after teaching, they'll go, you know, they'll ask for advice on things. I'm like, I don't know. Let's open the Bible and see what God has to say. If there is any wisdom, if there is any discernment, if there's any knowledge that comes out when I'm teaching, you know why? It's this word. And it comes directly from the I am. By the way, this is why John, by the Holy Spirit, conveys the seven I am statements of Jesus in his gospel. Listen to them. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. And John, in, on purpose, sets forth seven I am statements, a complete picture of the I am in Jesus Christ himself. And stay with me on this. Jesus is the Malach Yahweh. Jesus is the angel Yahweh. We talked about that briefly on Sunday, but Jesus leaves us no other option, makes it absolutely clear as to who he is. That is, Jesus is I am. John chapter eight, verse 51, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, then the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? And Jesus right there could have said, I am. But he answered, if I glorify myself, 
my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. See, there's the ignorance we were talking about. I may feel inadequate, and yet God is my adequacy, but if I'm ignorant as to the person of Yahweh, as to I am, if I don't understand I am, I'm still missing the whole picture here. Jesus says, you've not come to know him, but I know him, and if I say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. And your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw and was glad. Wait, Abraham saw Jesus? Yeah, we talked about that. Go back to Genesis 14, and you can listen to that story. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Yahweh blew their minds. In fact, the next verse says, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Before Abraham was born, he says, I am. In the Greek, it's ego me. I am. The Greek verb tense, again, of the present, active, immediate God. I am. Jesus ends all the debate as to who he is. As he claimed in that moment the very name of Yahweh. So you have a choice, I have a choice. I can take Jesus as he is, as I am, or not take him at all. There is no in-between. There is no Jesus the good teacher, but that's all. There's no Jesus the prophet, but that's all. There's no Jesus the miracle worker, but that's all. No, it's Jesus who is I am, or you don't believe in him at all. He's the one who claimed it. He made it clear. And listen to Paul write about this. This is Colossians chapter one, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean created, it means preeminent one. Firstborn from a Jewish perspective. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn, that is the preeminent one, again, from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. I am is Jesus. I don't mean to belabor the point, but if you feel inadequate and it's not getting any better, even when you hear people say, even when you hear me speak, God is our adequacy, if you still feel inadequate, Perhaps it's because you are ignorant to who I am. You understand what I'm saying? That it is in knowing him that my answers come, that my adequacy comes, 
that my joy returns, that my strength is built up, that my hope is filled. It's in him. It's not in some program or plan or strategy or idea. It's not in some modicum of success. It's in him. And it's knowing him, the knowledge of God. And so God says, Moses, you tell them I am has sent me to you. Back in Exodus 3.15, God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers. Not, by the way, I'm gonna say it this way all the way through. I've told you before, when you see the Lord in small caps, Lord there is always in the Hebrew scriptures, the tetragrammaton, the four consonants, the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And read that way, it enlightens us. It sheds light on some things that I think we need to see. So God furthermore, verse 15, said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So Yahweh now, God attaches the name Yahweh to God of the patriarchs, one and the same wants to be clear with Moses. So as he speaks the name, this is who he's talking about. This name, he said, this is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Memorial name, yeah, this is the name I want you to remember. This is the name you're supposed to call to mind, to keep, to hold, Yahweh. Go and gather the elders of Israel, he says, and gather them together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. By the way, just a quick side note, why do we always hear that milk and honey thing? The milk has to do with goats because goats are the primary population. They say a goat is the poor man's cow. But there were plentiful goats in the land of Canaan and throughout that region. And goats were the ones who provided the milk. So there's the land of milk and honey, the milk and wool and hides and meat. All of that would come through goats. They were the primary sustenance. Four people living in that land, and there were many of them, which also means that the land was very fertile for so many goats to live and dwell and to be able to eat and feed. So it's a good place. A land flowing with milk and honey is not the wild honey that I love so much. It's date honey. It's that thick, syrupy, sweet substance that comes out of dates. And date palms are all over, back again today, all over the land of Israel. So again, a rich, fertile, sweet, providing land, a land flowing with milk and honey, God repeats. And then in verse 18, he says, they will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our God. Now, this, this was not a trick, by the way. Asking Pharaoh for permission to go three days into the wilderness for a worship service, this wasn't a trick. This was a test. A test by God to Pharaoh, an opportunity for him to soften his heart and give them three days grace. 
Give them three days opportunity. Interesting that it's three days. See, three days is the call to all people. Three days. Will you accept that in three days he rose? Will you believe this? Will you trust that Yahweh raised Yeshua from the dead in three days? Will you accept that I am, he says? And so Pharaoh's response will be, will be telling. He's gonna fail the test. They're gonna first ask. They're not gonna ask to leave Egypt. They're just gonna ask for three days into the wilderness for a worship service. Well, what if, what if Pharaoh had said yes? Well, God knew he wouldn't. But he still gave him the opportunity. See, that's something of the grace of God right there. He always gives opportunity, even when he knows people will reject it. He's still gonna give it. Why? Because he's gracious. He allows us to say no. Well, verse 19, God continues saying, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion, literally except by a strong hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles or my wonders, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. Every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. (laughs) Without a shot fired, We will see this revolutionary deliverance play out exactly as Yahweh foresees and describes to Moses right here. I am who I am. But Moses still thinks, yeah, but I am not. So feeling inadequate, feigning ignorance, the next excuse pops up as Moses, number three, fears ineffectiveness. Verse one of chapter four, then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Have you ever thought that? Yeah, Pastor Rick this morning was really going off on evangelism, telling me I need to talk to my mailman about Jesus, telling me to share with my kid's teacher at school about the Lord, telling me I ought to stop and pause and talk to my neighbor over the hedges on a Saturday afternoon about Jesus and ask if he knows the Lord. What What if they don't believe me? What if they will not listen to me? This is an old, old, old excuse. And Moses went on to say, for they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. In other words, I'm gonna look like an idiot. Moses fears ineffectiveness. How many excuses have you given to God? Have I given to God not to do what I know he asks me to do? But but, but Lord, what if, Hey, don't forget that while this conversation's going on and Moses is vomiting up these excuses, the fire is still blazing while the bush remains untouched. This miraculous scene is right before the eyes of Moses, but Moses can't see it because Moses is still looking at Moses. So the Lord starts to do a little vision adjustment like a divine ophthalmologist, verse two The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff? Sort of stick, 
my walking staff. And then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. I would too. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand again. And what a great scene. You just see Moses running off and God going, wait, 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 come back, come back. I got this. Picks it up and there's his staff. And the Lord said, furthermore, uh, that they may believe in Yahweh, verse five, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Do this when you go to the elders of Israel. Show them this, that they will believe you. But the Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Well, that must have freaked him out right there. And then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. In verse eight, God says, if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Okay, so think about this with me. Review this. Yahweh gives Moses three signs just little signs, these are not a big deal, but three signs to perform before the elders of Israel. Staff to serpent, hand to leprosy, back to hand. And then Nile water, a little pitcher of Nile water poured out, turns into blood. Why those three things? Ever stop to wonder that? God is not random. He is always intentional. All three of these things, first of all, were familiar cultural, political, and religious icons of Egypt. The serpent. Man, Pharaoh's crown had what's called the ureus on it. That sacred cobra of the Egyptians with the threatening raised hood about to strike. That was typical on the crown of the Pharaoh. That was something known and thought to be a great power in Egypt. And if a man can come along and make his staff turn into a serpent, a cobra, and then pick it right back up and it goes back to a staff. That says something to a culture that seeks or thinks so highly of their, of their snakes. Leprosy. What about leprosy? Well, leprosy was the COVID-19 of the day in Egypt. It was the unseen, incurable menace. If you got leprosy, that was it. Off to the colony with you because there was no hope. There was no cure. And it was not leprosy, even as we know it today, it was far worse, brutal. Show him a leprous hand and then show him that it's healed. There's, the power is increasing here as far as what it looks like to the human eye. And then the Nile, take some of the Nile, some water out of the river. It's not the whole river, just take some water out. Pour it on the ground and it'll turn into blood. Hey, the Nile River was the lifeblood of Egypt. It fed everything, their crops, their fertile land. They, had, they lived by and died by the Nile. They believed that the Nile was itself a god. God's gonna deal with a lot of gods in the coming chapters here. 
But so he picks these three things because they are culturally relevant and they are signs of basically a gracious notice, merciful warning, especially the water turned to blood. That's a picture of the first plague. Get it, picture? Like see, because you, you use a pitcher to, and then you pour the blood out with it. You know, it's really hard to do puns here without you all here because I don't see your eyes rolling. And I miss that. I miss it greatly. The, the water poured out. Les and Jake are rolling their eyes just to help. I appreciate that, Rose. The water poured out becoming blood was a warning sign that yes, the entire river is gonna turn to blood. And that will be huge. That's coming up. But look even more closely because God's, God's intentional. God knows how to be culturally relevant. I hate the phrase, but God knows how to do it. He speaks across culture, across people, across race, across creed, across time. God can touch and speak to anyone and speak a language they understand. But look even more closely. See, from our perspective, looking back, if we look back through the last 2,000 years to Jesus, we recognize these cultural cautionary signs prefigure Jesus. Consider with me John 3, 14, where Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, that is another story that's coming, the lifting up of the serpent and what God's doing there. But the staff turning into a serpent reminds me of the serpent on the cross. That's offensive to some people. Wait a minute. Jesus compared the serpent on the pole that Moses raised out for their healing to himself on the cross, perfect Jesus at Calvary, looking like a serpent? Absolutely, because he had on himself all the sin of humanity, the snake on the cross, all the evil of the world he bore on his back, the worst that you have ever done. Jesus bore that. The serpent reminds us of Jesus. What about the the leprosy? Luke chapter seven, verse 22. Jesus said to, to the servants of John the Baptist, go tell John what you've seen and heard. Blind receive sight, lame walk, lepers are cleansed. Which by the way was a fulfillment of prophecy that Messiah would cleanse the lepers. Deaf hear, dead are raised up, poor have the gospel preached to them. This is the deal, man. I am is right here. So the leprous hand reminds us of the one who touched the leper and healed him. And I wonder, as the blood splashed onto the ground out of that container, as Moses would pour it out before the elders of Israel, I wonder in that moment if Jesus flinched because he knew his blood would be splashing all over the ground. He said in Luke 22, 20, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So God chooses these three things, a serpent, leprosy, blood poured out, and all three prefigure or remind us of Jesus. Back to Moses, feeling inadequate, feigning ignorance, fearing ineffectiveness, but for his next excuse, Moses floats inarticulacy. He floats inarticulacy. In other words, 
I don't talk good. Look at chapter four, verse 10. And Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Well, he certainly chooses his words well there. And it's, it's so funny to me what he says. Note this, I've never been, not recently, not in time past, not even since you've spoken to your servant have I been eloquent. In other words, in our conversation right here, I'm tripping all over myself. Well, no, duh, because you're making excuses, Moses. Of course you're not being eloquent. Which reminds me, I think one of the most eloquent things we can do before God is listen. It's when I start to answer back to God and talk back to God and 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 outthink God as if I could, I start to sound pretty stupid, pretty ineloquent. Well, the Lord said to him, this, by the way, trained in Egypt, schooled as an Egyptian royal, this man had a grasp of language. If Torah is any proof of this, the language in Genesis through Deuteronomy is breathtaking. He's a scholar. Moses was no bumpkin. But he's got to come up with something to throw the mantle off, to, to, to cause God to say, ah, maybe you're right. You're just not, you're not my man. So inadequacy didn't work. Ignorance didn't work. Ineffectiveness didn't work. So now inarticulacy, and God responds in verse 11, Yahweh said to him, who has made man's mouth? I wonder sometimes if God wishes he hadn't, but who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth. I like that. I'm not just gonna be with you, Moses. I'll be with your mouth, and I'll teach you what you are to say, and I really wonder how many of us would be far better off if we actually allow God to be with our mouths. Or in this culture, if we allow God to be with our typing or our posting. I'm off Facebook again. I wasn't gonna tell you that, but I'm telling you that. I got back on it when this pandemic hit and when we all got kind of stuck with the whole live stream and communicating and, and I, two nights ago, I'm lying there, I'm looking at Facebook and I'm getting angry. And I realized, I don't need this. I don't need this. I, you know why I was getting angry? It wasn't because opinions were being given that I disagreed with or had a problem with. It's that people were arguing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, please don't argue on Facebook. Don't get into these battles with words. You're not seeing eye to eye. You're not face to face. You're not able to read the other person's heart. You're just firing off your opinion. And by the way, most of our opinions are probably wrong at some level. I often tell my wife, I don't know why anyone would wanna listen to me other than the fact that I'm teaching his word. And I have to be careful because like anyone else, I can start firing off my dumb mouth and giving my opinion. Oh, Lord, be with my mouth. And oh, Lord, guard our hearts as we communicate with one another. May we speak the truth in love and not be all about fighting for our opinion because your opinion in a nickel is worth 
Not even a nickel. Okay, so to every excuse that Moses keeps throwing up, I'm inarticulate, I can't speak, I'm no good at this, God continues to answer time after time after time, I am. I am, excuse from Moses. I am, God says. Why? Because it doesn't matter who Moses is. The only thing that matters is who I am. It doesn't matter who you are. All that matters is who I am, Yahweh. But Moses is gonna make one last-ditch effort to get out from under the mantle of the deliverer. He just doesn't wanna do the job. And so in verse 13, he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. And note this, verse 14, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. See, if I was the Lord, the anger of Rick would have burned a lot earlier. I would have been fed up much sooner. But why now? Ask yourself the question, why why now? And Moses is the one jotting this down. He's the one who wrote this down for us. So he's the one who said, then the anger of Yahweh burned against Moses. So how did he know? And I wonder if the blazing fire in the bush flared up when Moses said what he said in verse 13. If all of a sudden there was a whoosh and Moses went, okay, someone's not happy. Because what's interesting is God, you would not tell, if you just took the first half of verse 14 out, you could not tell by the language that God speaks, by the words he used, you could not tell that he's angry. He's so patient. He is so long-suffering. He continues to work with Moses, but Moses was aware in this moment, God was angry. Why? What was it about Moses' statement? Let me read read it to you again. This is the New American Standard translation. uh, He said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Okay, well, that sounds all right. I mean, what's he saying? In your notes, number five, the fifth excuse, Moses focuses indifference. I'll prove this to you. Moses might as well have just said, whatever, whatever. As the Lord says, go, I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what you are to say. I'm sending you to deliver my people. And the last thing Moses says is, whatever. Now, some Bible teachers and scholars think he's saying, here I am, send someone else. You know, he's trying to redirect that this idea of please, Lord, send the message by whomever you will, that he's implying send it by someone else. But this is a deliberately vague statement. Mottier says this in the Hebrew, that it's, it does, it, it's not concrete. It's not a concrete answer. It's not a yes, it's not a no. It's a whatever. Whatever. That fits the tone. And it explains the sudden flash of holy anger. What do you mean? The life that Yahweh calls us to is a life of passionate trust and fiery obedience, not a life of apathetic whatever. Follow me, whatever. Take up your cross and follow me, whatever. I have a task for you in this world, whatever. I want you to take my message to my people, whatever. God is incensed 
by that kind of apathy. Whatever. I've heard it from my kids. I get being incensed by it. I don't hear it a lot. I got good kids. But over the years, and I probably, I'd have to go back in the old files in my brain and dust them off. I probably could find that time when one of them actually said, whatever, under their breath. Because I recall the feeling when you ask someone to perform a task, someone you care about, someone who matters to you, someone who's important, and they respond with, meh. God does not have any kind of patience with lukewarm attitudes. It, that will cause him to be ticked off faster than anything else. Whatever. Jesus said in Revelation 3.15, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Pleh. Whatever. Can you imagine standing before the cross of Jesus as his blood is poured out on the ground and saying, meh, whatever. I could take it or leave it. Whatever is the wrong answer. Indifference to a holy God. Now, Jesus said in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, he says, be zealous and repent. Be fiery, be passionate, own this. I am, you don't even have to be, just come on. I'll go with you, I'll put the words in your mouth, I'll give you the power, I will support everything you do. It's all about me anyway, you just come along for the ride. And when he gives that kind of information, invitation for us to go, yeah, okay, I guess. I mean, you know, I got nothing else to do in COVID-19 days. I might as well do something for Jesus. Whatever. Isaiah chapter 50, verse five says, the Lord has opened my ear. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. See, that's the disciple. The disciple is excited to hear from his Lord. The disciple wants to do for her Lord. The disciple is a passionate follower. The servant of the Lord Jesus is fired up by the call of the Lord Jesus. What is his call on your life? Don't look at me. I don't know what his call is for you. I know what it is for me. I know what my call is. And yeah, it excites me. What has he called you to do? What's the call that he's placed on you? And if you're sitting there going, I don't know. I would encourage you to ask God two things. Number one, Lord, show me my call. And number two, and fire me up. I think part of how we know we're called by God is we get passionate about it. When we, when we hit on the, on the thing that he's called us to do, what we are to be about, our heartbeat increases. And we get zealous for the good work that he has prepared us for and called us to. But man, have passion. Have passion or be ice cold. But don't play the whatever card. It never plays well with God. And here God ends the discussion. He will not take whatever for an answer. In verse 14, he continues, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? 
I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Aaron's already on his way. We'll find out in just a second here that God already spoke to Aaron and said, go see Moses. So Aaron's on the move, heading out to Midian, to Horeb, to meet his brother. He says, you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. I will teach you what you are to do. And he is still teaching us what we are to do and what we are to say. Jesus said in Luke 12, 11, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Luke 21, 13. Jesus, talking about persecution, says it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. We turn around and see that play out with Paul and the other apostles. And in our lives today, I will be with your mouth. I will tell you what to say. I will give you the right word. You you know what you and I are supposed to do with that? Be in the word. Man, just be in the word and be about the Lord and he'll give you what you are to say. Remember, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. So spend yourself on knowing Jesus. Read, study, meditate on the word of God. Pray in his presence. Get to know Jesus as I am right here, right now. You do that and he will take care of the rest. He'll give you what to say. He'll take you where you need to go. He'll call you. He will fill you with the passion, the excitement. He'll take you forward. And you won't need an Aaron. By the way, because of Moses' resistance, Aaron is now part of the deal, and I know there's gonna be a time when Moses wishes Aaron had not been part of the deal. Aaron's first high priest, but he's gonna get defrocked. Aaron comes along for the party because Moses doesn't want to do it alone, even though he's not alone. I am is with him. So Aaron now is part of it, and and it's going to get messy. A moment is coming, long about chapter 35, when Aaron will actually say to his brother, I don't know what happened. We threw the gold in the fire, and out came this calf. He will be one problem after another. And they are problems that God did not intend until Moses tried to push back. Man, just take it as God gives it. Don't push back because your additions and your answers, it's gonna make it worse for you. Moreover, verse 16, he, that is Aaron, shall speak for you to the people and he will be as a mouth for you and you will be as God to him. That is, the Moses to Aaron relationship would be like the God to Moses relationship. Kind of like the God to prophet. Now, Moses plays more that role of of God, little g, to Aaron being the prophet. Does it make sense? I'm asking a camera if this makes sense. I'm still trying trying to connect, folks, just trying to connect. And so he says, you shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs And then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please, let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. See, Moses doesn't even know if they're alive or not. 
course, you just talked to God who said, I'm gonna send you back to the people and it's all good. So he's still failing in his faith. He's still not trusting the very angel Yahweh that he just talked to. I gotta go, go see if they're alive. And Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. Verse 19, now Yahweh said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking or who were seeking your life are dead. So all that stuff that happened 40 years ago, it's past. So Moses took his wife, that's Zipporah, and his sons, he has two of them now, he has Gershom and, and yet another son, and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. Now, for the remainder of the chapter, Moses is gonna bring up some more information. He's gonna you know, fill us in on some other things that have, that have happened or are happening in this process. Verse 21, Yahweh said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. By the way, the Lord originally said signs when he was talking about the three things to do before the Israels, the, 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 um, the elders of Israel, the staff, the leprous hand, pouring out the blood. Those were signs, just little signs. The word is ot in the Hebrew. But now he uses the word wonders. See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. Wonders implies the greater plagues that will follow the three little signs at the outset. He says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Why would God send Moses all the way back to Egypt only to harden Pharaoh's heart? And much of this conversation I'm gonna leave for a later study. We're gonna get into that and talk about several reasons why the Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh and what's up with that and what's that all about. But for now, understand that before he ever left for Moses, God told Moses ahead of time how this would end. This is where it's gonna end. The firstborn of Israel is gonna, uh, of Egypt is gonna die. I was talking to Yeva a few minutes ago, you know what? Sometimes knowing how it's gonna end is tough. It's hard. We know where this world is headed. As excited as I am to be caught up, to be in the presence of the Lord and as much comfort as that brings me personally, God has been absolutely clear as to where things are going in this world, at least up to the coming kingdom, that it will go from bad to worse that because lawlessness has increased, the love of most will grow cold. You think you're seeing more hatred now than you ever saw it before? Well, that's exactly what God said would happen. You think these are, things are gonna get, things are getting out of control. Things are wicked, things are evil. Bad stuff's happening, I don't understand. It's exactly what God said would happen. He told us ahead of time. And it's hard knowing what's coming down the pike for this world. May it increase our love and our grace for the lost who are in this world. May it make us more zealous that one more person 
be saved in the name of Jesus. Because we know where this is going. We know what's gonna happen. Now, watch this, almost done. But the indifference of Moses to God's word, this whatever mentality, send whoever, if you're gonna send me, send me, if you wanna send someone else, send someone else, whatever. This mentality is not a new thing with Moses. Watch this, verse 24. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. (laughs) What? What? Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet, and she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Huh? One commentator said, man, this story just seems like it was stuck in there and has nothing to do with the context, except for the fact that it begins, it came about at the lodging place on the way. So it's right in the context. This is exactly what was taking place after God appears to Moses, after the angel Yahweh speaks with Moses, after he connects with Aaron, he's gonna head back on his way and this this vignette, this strange little story happens where the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. By the way, we don't know who him is. You assume it's Moses. It may not be. It could be Gershom. It could be his firstborn. Why? Because the issue is circumcision. Moses His sons are not circumcised. Some have said, maybe Moses wasn't even circumcised. Hey, he was nurtured and fed in his mother's house. No question he was circumcised. And circumcision was that long-standing covenant with Abraham, all the people of Abraham. This is what you did. You circumcised the kids. The strange story kind of explodes on the scene. And Moses himself writing this explains that it was, there was a violation of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17, 10. This is my covenant, God said, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Straight down the line. This is what you had to do. Circumcise the infant boys. Whatever. Whatever. I know it's a command of God. This was a pre-law command that Moses had neglected with at least one of his boys, if not both of them. And that kind of spiritual indifference, fathers, listen, it infects a family. You say whatever to God, your son is gonna say whatever to God. You will pass it right along. Spiritual indifference infects a people. Man, if a pastor stands up there and goes, eh, take it or leave it. You know, most of this is allegory and metaphor anyway. You know, it's the kind of morality tales, not a big deal. Then that's what the people are gonna do. That will infect, that will be passed along. Whatever. Moses had neglected to circumcise his sons. Something so basic, so simple as that. Now you might say, well, All right, I understand that's serious, I guess, but God was gonna kill him for it? Just for forgetting to call the moil? Isn't that a bit extreme? Moses had had 40 years to do right by his children. 
and the burning but not consumed bush encounter, that alone should have awakened his spiritual sensibility. How many times did God refer to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Why do you think God's doing that? He's recalling Moses to the covenant, which is primarily signified in circumcision. And yet Moses wasn't doing anything, whatever, whatever. Moses knew better. And even Zipporah knew what the problem was. So she quickly takes a flint knife and circumcises her son. Now, it's funny here. It says that she took his foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. That's not really what it says. In the Hebrew, it's literally she touched his feet with the foreskin. The phrase, she threw it at his feet, that's a little rough, if not gross. She saw something going on. Now, we don't know, was it, was it Moses? And Moses doesn't describe to us, what does it mean that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death? Did he suddenly have a high fever? Was he shaking with convulsions? Was he epileptic? We don't know. Was it even Moses? It could have been Gershom. As they're on their way, gets violently ill, and they realize, Zipporah realizes it. The Midianite wife gets it. He's not circumcised. You're walking in disobedience. And so she quickly circumcises it, him, touches the feet. Again, whether it's Moses who was sick or, or under attack or Gershom, it really doesn't matter, either the father or the son, but the circumcision stopped it immediately because it was made right. What was Zipporah so angry about? Well, as a Midianite, she knew this covenant wasn't even hers, but it was her husband's. And we don't know. I mean, there's so much in this story that you just would have to kind of guess, and I don't want to go too far into that. I do find it interesting that after this, Zipporah disappears. Zipporah's name means little bird, and this may be when she flew the coop. We don't see her after this. In fact, it won't be until Genesis 18 when Jethro comes to Moses and the people having already left Egypt comes out to meet them and brings Zipporah and his sons with him to reunite them with Moses. But listen, now don't miss this. It's not just a historical Abrahamic covenant tale. As to the seriousness of the situation, Moses remained unfit for spiritual leadership until the flesh was dealt with. You gotta deal with the flesh. I know so many over the years who want to be in spiritual authority and leadership, but they're still living in the flesh. Doesn't work. You've gotta cut the flesh off. Moses would never forget this. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six, he said, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. To live in Christ Jesus, there must be a circumcision of the heart. And this is an ongoing picture throughout the Bible. Long after Torah, even after Jesus came and ascended back to heaven, this picture of circumcision Romans 13, 14, Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So what are we supposed to do then? What are you saying, that we're supposed to circumcise our sons? 
I'm not saying that. Although medically, it's been shown that's actually a very healthy thing to do, but that's not the point here. For anyone who would say, well, whatever. What's the big deal? Why is God all hung up on this circumcision thing? Listen closely. Colossians chapter two, chapter two, verse eight. Let me just read this to you. Pay attention. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, which by the way are all over social media right now, rather than according to Christ. You want an opinion? Here you go. Paul says, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Yahweh. And in him, you have been made complete. For he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him, listen, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What in the world is Paul talking about? When did that happen? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Too many Christians today say whatever to baptism. Whatever. I think it happened when I was a baby. I'm not sure. Well, yeah, I don't know. Going in the water and getting myself all wet, that's, that's kind of shaming and humbling, isn't that? I, I have faith, faith. That, you know, because it's by grace you are saved through faith. The Bible says that, so you know, no big deal. Whatever. It's a big deal to God. Yes, it is grace that saves you. Yes, it is faith in the grace of God that brings salvation into a life and into a heart. And yes, God commanded that we go into the waters of baptism and be immersed, that is, buried with Christ, that we might be raised with Christ to walk in a newness of life. And it was so important that Paul said, this is our circumcision. This is the removal of the flesh. You know, sometimes we may not understand something is a big deal to Yahweh. We, we don't know why. Why is this so important to Yahweh? You know what? It doesn't matter. We don't need to understand why he is asking us to do things. We just need to obey. The flesh is death. That's the deal. Live in the flesh, you'll die. That's what the flesh does. Live for this world, live for this life, live in the flesh. The flesh is death but obedience removes the flesh. Obedience to circumcision, it's just a foreskin. I mean, not to be crude or anything, but folks, it's not that big a deal. It's, it's a little thing. It's obedience, which is huge. To obey is better than sacrifice, God said. It's obedience, and obedience removes the flesh. Going into the waters of baptism, well, it's not a big deal. Oh no, you get wet. It's a little thing, but it's about the obedience. And obedience removes the flesh. Flesh, my friends, flesh had been behind the flimsiness of Moses all along. It was flesh 
that was offering excuse after excuse after excuse. And here at the end of this part of the story, we discover he hadn't even circumcised his sons. Flesh was still the deal. Flesh was still in control. Finally, they took care of this. Now the boy's circumcised. God's good with that. Verse 27, now the Lord said to Aaron, go meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, Horeb, and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. Verse 30, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people, the the three little signs, right? Staff to serpent, back to staff. Hand to leprosy, back to normal healthy hand. Blood out of the container from the Nile. And so verse 31, oh, this is great. The people believed And when they heard that the Lord, that Yahweh was concerned about the sons of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. Man, this is going great. This is wonderful. The signs are received. The people are convinced. They even break into a reverent, holy street worship right then and there. Man, we're off and running, right? Tune in on Sunday. And we'll see where this goes. It's not what you expect. Let me finish with this. We have seen through these two chapters, as I said when we started it, a juxtaposition, if you will, the reluctance of Moses on the one hand. He began feeling inadequate and he feigned ignorance and he feared ineffectiveness and he floated his inarticulacy and he focused his indifference, whatever, And you look at all this Moses and you go, this is God's man? This is God's choice? Really, Lord, you're gonna do this with him? And I believe God saw something in Moses that we have yet to see. He had already bred into Moses things that would be needed. He had trained Moses even, even back in Egypt in things that he would need. And as a shepherd for 40 years, God knew what he was doing when he called this man. But here's the point. He could have called you 3,500 years ago. Could have called me if we were alive at the time. You see, God's man like you and me is weak and flimsy in contrast to the main point of Exodus 3 and 4, which is Yahweh, I am. I am is the issue. What have we learned of I am? What do we understand about God? He responds to every single excuse in this identity crisis of Moses. Time and again, he just responds with the same answer. He brings him back and he says, I am. I am. The God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, I am is the answer. He is I am. He is Yahweh. He is, as we've seen, the self-revealed God, the ever-present, always active in the now. I am. He's faithful to his word. As, As proven in the promises to Abraham now coming to bear. He says it, he does it. His power is inexhaustible as in the fire there in the bush. 
And his power, by the way, doesn't exhaust his servants because it's his power. And he's the maker and the mover and the shaker in this. He's patient, providing everything that we need, even when what we need doesn't make sense in the flesh. And I think we could say this also about God, that he would appreciate a little fire in our response to his call. Moses is beginning to learn, and I hope you are as well. It just doesn't matter who we are. What matters is who I am. And Father, Lord, Yahweh, we bow before you in humble recognition that you are, that as we've been saying throughout, I am that I am. Lord Jesus, that you said before Abraham was born, I am. And that being the case, Lord, we acknowledge that you are present and existent right now. That you, Lord, are in our living rooms. That you're in this auditorium. That you are out beyond the airwaves from state to state and in our world. You are existent. You are present. And while we know the end that is coming, and we have read and studied these things, and we know it's gonna go from bad to worse before finally glory comes, we also know our God is I am. Father, I pray for this comforting truth, truly to saturate us tonight the reality that no matter how bad it gets, how oppressive it seems, how heavy things are, I am. Lord, would you redirect our attention to you? And when we come up with lame, flimsy excuses, turn our eyes upon Jesus, author and finisher of our faith. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. Call us back to I am. For it is in you, Lord Jesus, that we have hope, we have faith, and we recognize a love eternal. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>